Welcome to Forging Plowshares, a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom of God. We hope this part of our ongoing conversation stimulates your mind and challenges your heart about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. In Judaism, the Aramaic word Abba, it's just a familiar term for father. I suppose it would be something like our dad. And it's a title that was used for rabbis. It's actually a, a kind of almost a proper name in the way that Jesus is using it. But it's almost never used for God before Christ. And Jesus used Abba. That seems to be the characteristic way that he refers to God. So for example, in Mark 14:36, he says, Abba, Father, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. He may have used the term Abba whenever the, in the Greek it's pater or father occurs. And again, it denotes this childlike intimacy and trust. It's not a term of disrespect in any way. And so Jesus teaches the disciples to pray, and he's teaching them the word Abba. That is, this is strange for them. They've never, that's not who they call God. He teaches them this new name, and with the new name, there is a new relationship. And so this is indicated in the fact that Paul, in both Romans 8.15 and Galatians 4.6, he uses the name as, I think it's God's personal name. This is the son's name for God inclusive of this new relationship and so Paul is carrying on the teaching of Jesus as we have it in the Lord's Prayer for example and so it's this new relationship really inclusive of all that Jesus did his life his death his resurrection that is that it culminates in this new relationship and name And to learn this name and relationship then is the idea, it's a summation of the work of Christ. And so as Paul describes it in Romans, actually all of creation is involved. All perception of the world and who God is, all prayer, all emotion, really all of what it means to be human is caught up in this new name and relationship. And so as we have it in both Galatians and Romans, this is at the same time a defeat of the spirit of slavery or what is clearly a father problem. You know, we've got a father problem and here is the resolution truth. And in this problematic view of God, God is misperceived through the law. And this results in a punishing, enslaving relationship. So there is a simultaneous release from enslavement. You know, this misperception of who God is, a bad father image, into the freedom of the children of God, is the way that Paul puts it. And this opens all creation. It's freeing all of creation. All of creation groans in this relationship, which is fully realized 
when we cry, Abba, Father. So look at Romans 8, 14 to 15. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. Here is the seal, here is the sign that you've been adopted into the family of God. This new name, this new relationship. And then look at a parallel verse, Galatians chapter 4, verse 4 to 7. But when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons, as children. Because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. And so when we call God Father, you know, is this simply a projection of a basic human need? You know, this is the way Freud pictured it. And if God is Father and Jesus is God embodied as male, doesn't this leave out the women from a kind of male communion? And of course, I've answered that. We've talked about that. That this idea that, you know, maybe women are second-class citizens, that the feminine is denigrated. This is not the case. But should we pray our mother who art in heaven? Secularism, modernism, atheism, they all picture God as an invention of human beings. That is, we've projected God, and we make out of God what we need. This is Ludwig Feuerbach, who is kind of the precursor of this. He writes a book called The Essence of Christianity. He says, what is God to man? That is, man's own spirit, man's own soul. What is man's spirit, soul, and heart? That is his God. God is the manifestation of man's inner nature, his expressed self. Religion is the solemn unveiling of man's hidden treasures, the avowal of his innermost thoughts, the open confession of the secrets of his love. God is a projection of man, Feuerbach is saying. And actually this notion of human values and needs as just projected onto God, that's thematic in the modern period. So Friedrich Nietzsche maintains God and religion are a product of the resentments of the weak. So we use God like a superhero. We're poor and weak and we imagine, well, God will come in. Freud teaches us that God language is really about sex. We sublimate our basic desires through God language. Karl Marx teaches us that God and theology, it's really an instrument of economics. You know, kind of the bourgeoisie uses this. It's an opiate, a kind of drug to numb the working class to their oppressed position. Carl Schmitt, who is less well-known, but he's a Nazi jurist, he actually says that all of the notions of state and government are theological concepts that have been emptied out of God. 
that the modern state is now functioning like the church and state ministers are the priests. And of course he thought this was a good idea. His idea, well, well that's Hitler, right? Hitler's the Messiah. He's the Pope. He's the minister all rolled into one. And so psychoanalysis with Freud, atheism, Marxism, communism, socialism, fascism, nationalism. They all turn theology on its head, claiming that the theological and divine are really about the human. I think the proper theological move, which we learn from the New Testament, but specifically from the image of God as Abba, is to turn theology back round by reclaiming these secular insights. Instead of God language being for the weak, well, we learn weakness is really about God and how God comes to us. God is not a distant deity, but bears a proper name of endearment, Abba. Instead of God language really being about sex, well, sex is really about God. The erotic is not over and against agape love, but is woven through it and indicates its proper end. Instead of religion being an opiate to numb economic oppression, economics and economic justice is all about God. That's who God is. God cares for the poor. There's more written about money and poverty in the Bible than anything else. God wants his people to bring about economic justice. Instead of allowing for the modern theory of state to occupy theological concepts, the theological challenge, the church challenge, we must challenge the sole sovereignty of the state. The state is not the church. The president is not our minister or our messiah. The governing officials are not his chosen ones. And maybe this final point, you know, this is Carl Schmitt's recognition of the sovereign as the, you know, the sovereign is always the exception which establishes the law and the order of state power. That is, the, the sovereign embodies the law. But it pinpoints the unified theme, I think, in all of these realms. In each instance, God is marked out as a point of exception, a means of escape a point of oppression even, a tool of legitimation, so that the transcendent concept of God, really the bad father image is what we're talking about, came to occupy the supreme understanding of who God is, and it emptied out imminent categories, that is the categories of the world. And then these in secularism are turned around. And so, you know, this is Friedrich Nietzsche's famous announcement. God is dead and we have killed him. It is not an admission of defeat, but a claim of power. He's saying this should empower us. And what he does not seem to realize is the Freudian insight, the biblical insight, that the law, the totems and taboos of society are precisely put into place because of this death of the father. That is, this thing gets a grip on us. And the power of state, the power of sex, the power of money, the power of the human psyche unleashed from its son. This is Nietzsche's imagery here. 
it proves deadly, it proves out of control. And so capitalism, nationalism, the state as sovereign, sex as an identity, or simply the manipulation of psychic categories as a kind of salvation, each have claimed their own legitimating frame in pure power. You know, why is the sovereign the sovereign? Because he's the sovereign. The law is the law. But in their own way, all of these realms have proven to be a supreme form of enslavement. And I think that's the time that we're living through. So we can't just drop God back into the formula. We have to reconceive God. And I believe Abba Father is the way in which we need to reconceive God. God is not a stopgap. He's not a legitimating source for state power. He's not the exception which proves the rule. He's not, you know, the gold standard implementing capitalism. Modern religion, I believe, is atheistic when it uses God. It's atheistic in practice when it uses God in this way. And so to truly believe in the Trinitarian God, the Abba of Christ, the spirit of love. It has economic, sexual, ascetical, psychoanalytic, political, and environmental requirements. That is, God is father of everything. God with us. That's the image of the Messiah. He comes to us in and through the realms of the world. And where deity has been evacuated from these realms, we lose both God and the world. So where there is no horizon beyond the economic, where economy is everything, or beyond the sexual, or beyond the psychoanalytic, or the political, this is everything. And there is no proper ordering of these realms. We just kind of live and move and have our being in money, in sex, in the psychoanalytic. And it's not a realm apart, it just is all-consuming. On the other hand, to picture God as accessible apart from these realms, we say, well, God is completely transcendent. It is really not to elevate God, but it is to demean him as a projection. In other words, I think Feuerbach is right, that we can create a projection. Isn't that the story of the Bible? That there is a misunderstanding of who God is. He's you know, often pictured as a bad father, an, uh, an instrument of the law, an opiate, an abstraction. And so the point is not that we understand God on the basis of the categories of the world, but the categories of the world are mediated to us on the basis of our understanding of God. So for example, we do not understand God as father on the basis of our human fathers. But we grasp the meaning, what is a human father supposed to be? Well, we see that in Abba. It mediates to us human fatherhood, mediates to us the fatherhood of God. It's not simply fatherhood, of course, that it pertains to everything about God. All things, all categories, all ordering of the world must pertain to being able to rightly realize God's identity. And so we understand what fathers are, what children are, what sex is, what a healthy psyche is, what a proper politic is, what love is, on the basis of rightly integrating God and world. And this is the meaning, I think, of the word Abba in both Romans 8.15 and Galatians 4.6. 
Paul is talking about cosmic purposes here. And I presume the realization of this truth of God and world integrated, that's what's conveyed in the proper name given to God, communicated by his Son, realized through the Spirit. This is the whole work of God to bring this about. God is integrated into our lives and world, not on the basis of the world, but on the basis of Christ. Who is Christ? Who is he in the world? And is also on the basis of knowing Christ that we receive the world back. And so in the incarnation we receive God in the world and the world and all of its categories are transformed in light of Christ. We learn this at Christmas. It's not too low for God to inhabit the womb of a virgin. It's not too low for God to be born a baby in a manger. The world is not too low that Christ would not come and eat and work and grow and live and die. But all of these categories are transformed by Christ. All of the world is taken up by Christ and through the world we are now given divine insight. That is we know who Christ is because he entered the world. God has poured himself into the world, into human experience due to his yearning, his love, and he draws all things back to himself through this same yearning, this desire to be Abba. It's a loving term of endearment that he's teaching us to know him by. Dionysius, the Areopagite, he says human desire originates in divine yearning and that the basis and end of Eros is agape. It's God's desire that is the main thing. He says, let us not fear this title of yearning, nor be upset. He says, in my opinion, the sacred writers regard yearning, eros, the erotic, the sexual, and love, agape love, as having one and the same meaning. The desire of love pertains to ultimate reality, to God himself as source and substance. But I believe this is an understanding that opens up every phase of human subjectivity. You know, if the erotic or the embodied as agape points us to the deepest and earliest phases of human subjectivity, and this is the ground on which God comes to us, isn't that true of all the categories of the world? That all are then ordered according to this root of showing us agape all conscious and unconscious origins. And this is really what Dionysius says. He says that God is transported to dwell within the heart of all things. Paul says, in him we live and move and have our being. Dionysius says, hence this universe, which is both one and many, the conjunctions of parts together, the unities underlying all multiplicity and the perfections of the individual and wholes. He's saying God is in all of these. Quality, quantity, magnitude, infinitude, fusions, differentiations, all infinity and all limitations, he is there. All boundaries, ranks, transcendences, elements, forms. He's just trying to say everything. He is there. All being, all power, all activity, all condition, all perception. He is there. All reason, all intuition, all apprehension, all understanding. 
all communion. He is there. In a word, all that is comes from the beautiful and good and hath its very existence in the beautiful and good and turns toward the beautiful and good. God is pouring himself out into the world and drawing all things back into himself. All perception, all intuition, all development is in and through and drawn toward his goodness. What is sin? Well, it's where this is stopped short in our lives. It's stunted, where disorder enters in. And the principle of sin is a kind of misorientation. You know, a misorientation toward God and the law. We interject the law in the place of God. And I believe we can just describe it as we got a bad father image. That's our main problem. God or the law is pictured as a delimiting factor, a point of prescription, of punishment. And the law is taken as an end in and of itself. And then God perceived through this law, he doesn't beget, he doesn't desire, he doesn't engender, but he forbids, he disrupts. And so just as rightly ordering the world is summed up in the realization of Abba, Father, so too the disordering of sin is summed up in this failed fatherhood of God or our failed perception of God through the law. That's what Paul is saying in short. We've been set free from the slavery of the law. I think this stands behind Paul's culminating point. This is the high point of his picture in Romans and Galatians. It culminates right here. We cry out, Abba, Father. And here is the fulfillment of all things. The realization of God as Father puts right not simply the failure of earthly fathers and mothers, but it completes, complements, and teaches you know, what it truly means to be human, what it truly means to be a child of God by locating the human person in the Trinitarian subject. And so Christ first calls out God, Abba, and then we take up this relationship through the Son and the Spirit. And this relationship then reappropriates, it fulfills all of the worldly order. The creation itself, Paul says, groans in travail in the realization of this Abba relationship. You know, we could describe the disorder or the misunderstanding. Maybe there is a kind of monism, a kind of pantheism in which a kind of law of oneness. I think that's a mistake. Or there could be this kind of binary of difference, of patriarchy. But it's in the Trinity, in the place of the Son, that brings out the cry, Abba, Father, through the Spirit. That's what Paul says. All three persons of the Trinity are involved in this realization. It's an interpenetrating realization of what a true subject is. This is from the Theological Dictionary. This is Kittle, the premier authority. He says, Jewish usage shows how this father-child relationship to God far surpasses any possibilities of intimacy assumed in Judaism, introducing indeed something which is wholly new. Here is something that makes everything new. As John says, no one has seen God at any time, but God the Son who abides in the Father has revealed him, has made him known, has explained him. John 1.18 and so as both Galatians and Romans explain it, the Son is born under the law so as to deliver from the enslavement to the law. 
in Romans and Galatians, the shift is from being a slave to being a child of God, an adopted child. And it's realized in the heart cry, Abba, Father, because Paul says, you are sons. God has sent the spirit of son into our hearts, crying out, Abba. Therefore, you are no longer a slave. There's the shift. There's the realization. You're an heir through God. And so the explanation and the adoption accomplished through Christ, through his life, death, resurrection, in Paul's explanation, this confronts the human predicament, the universal human problem in regard to who God is. It defeats the enslaving, death-dealing, kind of obscene notion of the Father. The Abba relationship to God involves all the work of Christ, But I guess it involves every aspect of human subjectivity, of what it means to be human. Paul pictures it as conscious, we cry out, but he also says it goes beyond words. We can't utter this, and the Spirit intercedes for us. It's unconscious. It addresses the punishing and enslaving aspect of the law and replaces it with one who is able to have peace and love. And so the naming of Abba, the relationship, included in that, it's very specific to the work of the Son. We need that title. We need that name. We need this fulfillment included. And so to change the name, for example, to Mother, I think would miss, first of all, what the universal problem is of the law, and then it would miss the universal answer found in Christ. So to erase, evade, or change the name, I think it creates the danger of falling back or of never being extracted from what is actually the human predicament. We've talked about the feminine characteristics of God, that it's the mothering, birthing, nurturing images of God in the Holy Spirit that the Abba relationship is made possible. But isn't that true of every child? That every child comes to their own self-identity through mother, father, understanding. This Abba relationship must be a fulfillment of the early concept of mother-father as the unified source engendering. You know, it's really when we only come to recognize mother and father that we recognize ourselves. And so I think the child's development is not unlike Paul's depiction of the spirit's engendering, you know, this feminine engendering of sonship as enabling the Abba relationship. To sum it up, the conclusion, the development of what it means to be human in all of its stages, known, unknown, all being, all power, all activity, all condition, all perception, all reason, all intuition, all those things that Dionysius names, understanding, communion, it comes from God and it turns all things toward God. And this pull of divine desire is realized. We understand, oh, this is pervasive. In him we live and move and have our being. It's a fulfillment, though, of the specific work of Christ as it overcomes the universal problem, the problem of the Father, in a cosmic and universal incorporation into the family of God. 
Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have found this podcast valuable, please remember to share on social media. If you have questions about what you've heard, or if you'd like to learn more about how you can get involved with Forging Plowshares or even support this ministry financially, please visit our website, forgingplowshares.org.